Okay, so we're going to be talking in April about a couple of my favorite things, a la Oprah. And I have a trivia question to uh, kick this off with. Uh, now, I've probably told a couple people what I'm talking about, but maybe or maybe not you might actually know this. Mm. Which, which future Power Ranger is in this movie? Ooh... Oh, I don't know, actually. Um, just thinking about the cast. Uh... Yes. Oh, I don't know. I'd have to look for the cast list. I'm sure if I looked for the cast list, I would find the person. They're <laughs> but, at the very uh... bottom of the cast list. In fact, it doesn't come up on Wikipedia. Like, you can't link to their actual Wikipedia profile. Uh, Justin oh. Nemo, who would go on to play in Power Rangers in space um, is in this film. Uh, there is a rather famous Vampire Diaries vampire in this film, or maybe they're a hybrid. I don't really know how Vampire Diaries works. So Daniel Giles, whose last name I always thought was Giles, but there's an extra I in there, uh, who played in the Vampire Diaries slash the originals. And probably the most famous bit of 90s casting outside of, like, the top build cast. Mark Lucas is also in this film. Um, he does play a side character, but I firmly believe it was because of being unpleasant Bill is the reason he was cast as Riley Finn. Um, because he has a lot of Riley softness in this movie and in the, in the few scenes he's in. In fact, he's one of the reasons why I think this was probably the gay straight movie um, of the movies from the 90s that I like. And I include Batman and Robin in that list. So, Ooh. Yes. Uh, so I suppose that um, we could probably start this off by talking about what we're actually talking about today. Yes, I'm talking about 1998's Pleasantville from the co-director of Big and Dave. Uh, <laughs> 1998's Pleasantville. That's literally in the poster for the movie is from the co-creator of Big and Dave, which were two other relatively big films of the 90s although i think big might be from the 80s but this was kind of the director was known for not mm. quite prestige but rather approachable not quite blockbuster not quite indie somewhere in between fair mm. uh dave is kevin klein as both the president and the president's twin who takes over when the president has a heart attack and then does all of the dreamy good everybody wishes they could do if they were president, uh, Sigourney <laughs> Weaver's in that film. And of course, Big is the very troubling story of a kid that becomes Tom Hanks. And um, people, uh, people post the film realize the problematic issues with it. But from the creator of that comes 1998's Pleasantville, which has a lot of really big at the time stars, a lot of new players, mm. Um, and a lot of people that would become big stars, but also kind of the final film roles for a couple of the actors in it. Uh, mm. J.T. Walsh, who plays Big Bob slash the mayor. From what I can see of the cast list, there appears to be quite a nice mixture of proper established talent and sort of up-and-coming young stars and such. Um, it, it strikes me as one of those movies that um, clearly it's being made with a vision and love to it yeah. so they've gone out their way to find a mix of talent that's perfect for that film rather than you know going to find uh who's hot now 
shall we say. <laughs> well, and Toby was, I, I don't think people realize this because when we think of Toby now, we think of him in like dad mode. But at in 98, he had done Cider's House Rules. And so he had done kind of his art house pictures. And he was like kind of that safe teen heartthrob uh, that your mm. parents would be like, yeah, you could bring him home for dinner. So he was like, if you didn't want a bad boy heartthrob, you got Toby Maguire. I think he'd also been in Wonder Boys at the point where he'd done Pleasant Bill. So he was kind of like a art house. There wasn't such a delineation between art house and big budget as there is now. So like mm -hmm. Toby's work in kind of this like dreamy, lovable, finding love, uh, boy meets girl character was something Toby was pretty familiar with at this point. So The friendly next door neighbor boy type. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, and in fact, that is kind of the character he plays in this mm. film as David slash Bud Parker. Um, mm. And it really kind of shows you why he was cast as Spider-Man, but also how much more he could do. Um, and it's always exciting to see him, seeing him in mm. um, all the things he's been in. I can see why he was cast as the lead in Pleasantville, and he really does mm. hold the movie together as kind of the world itself is falling apart. So, yeah. Mm. And this whole thing of, like, him finding what more he could be, I think that's a really good way to sum up one of the main thrusts of this film, in the sense of it's try of, of people trying to find, like, more what they can be beyond sort of the uh, black and white stereotype. Yes. Uh, this whole, the, so in the Wikipedia page, the themes are about, you know, repression and enlightenment. But as a, as someone that wasn't out to themselves in 98 and didn't really have the verbiage, coming out mm -hmm. day had been around for a little bit, but I wasn't in a safe place to be out, nor did I know mm -hmm. that's who I was in 98. Um, there are a lot more when I watch this movie over and over again, the way that I read it is it's a queer narrative about being able to come out of the closet and be yourself. Um, I'm not, I, I think it's because probably the co-creator, co-writer, co-director, because he was all three. I, I feel like the the director was, you know, straight. So he came out of this like straight lens of bringing everyone into color, uh, but it works as a queer narrative. It works as a trans narrative. Mm. It works as a narrative about community building. As a queer man, I see a lot of it um through the queer lens uh mark lucas's yeah. character reads very submissive to me in the scenes mm -hmm. where he's in color and so i read that dominant submissive narrative into it in fact there's another buffy actor uh the guy that played jonathan is also in this film um mm -hmm. i think he has a couple more speaking lines than mark lucas but mark lucas mark lucas doesn't have a lot of lines in this film but he's always mm -hmm. whenever he's present on camera you can always kind of tell where he is and without saying anything he evokes that spirit of like submissive mm -hmm. man but in a positive way i don't know if mark knew yeah. he was doing that but when you watch the movie <laughs> that's really the sense that i get from either how they blocked him or how he blocked himself in certain scenes so uh hindsight is one of those things that's a wonderful gift to have but you know sometimes like you without hindsight you come up with, you know you portray yourself perhaps in ways you didn't even think that you could portray yourself in 
Oh, and if I ever if I ever met Mark Lucas at a con, I would have him sign a Pleasantville DVD <laughs> before I'd have him <laughs> sign a Buffy one, anyways. Uh, mm. But that's just my uh, opinion. Uh, Jane Kaczmarek is also in this movie. Uh, she's in the beginning. Mm. And the end, playing uh, David and Jennifer's real-world, quote-unquote, mom. Uh, Jane Kasmer, mm. of course, would go on to be the mom from Malcolm in the Middle. Um, but in this movie, she does play someone who's very world-weary and is a single mom doing her best. Uh, but she she acts the hell out of the two scenes she's in. Uh, she is she is she is she was not doing it for the paycheck. She was she was really present and being. Mm a really great hairy single mom trying to find, you know, life for herself. Uh, the interior lives of the characters in this movie, including the ones in the Pleasantville world, are very robust. I haven't seen the treatment, but I can imagine the treatment for this movie must be somewhere in the realm of 30 pages, because mm. all the characters in this film really do have goals outside of becoming the color versions of themselves, the enlightened versions of themselves. Um, some of them don't know they have yes. that, but when they figure it out and people start going into color, you really see it. Yeah. Uh, you see how Toby Maguire tries to really run from it until he can't run from it anymore, hence the queer yes. narrative. Uh, and Reese Witherspoon does a great job as um, Jennifer slash... Uh, uh, whatever the sister's name is, actually, because he oh, calls her Jennifer right. throughout the film. Mary, uh, yeah, Mary or something like that. Yeah, she she goes by that name, but I always think of her as Jennifer because Toby's saying her name just yeah. rings in my head. Uh, Reese mm. Witherspoon going through kind of her transformation from like wanton slut because they really amped that up for her in this role to <laughs> being someone more confident, more able to be intrigued by things. Um. And then at the end of the movie, being able to bag uh, a college guy as her like first real romance in like the spinoff from Pleasantville, I think is very. I, I think it's a very special. It's a very special cast, very special roles, and a very special yeah. story. Um, this was the kind of movie that kind of movies they made in the '90s without any irony. Uh, and mm -hmm. the the trailer for it does absolutely no justice. It it kind of spoils the film. It also shows like significant scenes. But it also oh. doesn't do justice to the movie. So if you go by the trailer, it might not look as intriguing. But the film itself, uh, from mm. Randy Newman's score uh, to Fiona Apple's cover of Across the Universe uh, to all of the really great political allegory, but also the personal narratives, um, the scenes where um, Jeff Daniels discovers color before he turns into color, like Jeff Daniels' trapped haplessness in this film that uh, mm. David as Bud kind of guides him into who he actually wants to be is special. And it's not something yeah. you see in many, because usually it's like the older person being mentor to the younger person in like a great expectation sort of way. This is yes. the reverse. And it takes a long time for david as bud to pull himself where everyone else is because he spends most of the movie directing everyone else once he's in pleasantville he doesn't really change until he's forced to stand up for himself and it's the, mm. the scenes that toby has in this movie the ones where he's painting his mom's makeup in and the one later where he stands up for her when he gets when, when he actually like 
tries to punch uh, Paul Walker's character. I think it's Paul Walker. There's something, like, when I think about significant scenes with very little dialogue that are driven by both the shots in the movie and the music, mm. the scene with painting his mom's face in with black and white makeup to hide her after she's come into color because it's not safe for her to be who she really is and just how heartbreaking that scene lingers too. I, it might be the longest scene mm -hmm. in the film. Um, and there's some cuts, but there's so few cuts and you really get the sense of the intimacy and the heartbreak and the fear from her. And then that kind of overwhelmingly, emotional response from him after she's gone into the room as her quote-unquote old self um yes it mm. all exists it's all in 1998's pleasantville <laughs> it really does sound like one of those films that how do i describe this there are certain films that pop up every once in a while that's sort of like a conflux of different elements coming together the right actors at the right time a great story that people want to tell and they've done it in such a way that it becomes one of those memorable flicks that people like naturally pass on through word of mouth and then those movies are shared shared down you know generation passing it from friend to friend um yourself to the children you know and such like that um it sounds like one of them it's um it it definitely feels like there's a great deal of quality to this movie, which is always like the stand yeah. the the thing that is the standard, the test of time. Um, you can tell us, you can t do storytelling of Cinderella, and you don't change any of the script. But if it's done well, then people remember it. Yes. Um, and... Or you get them changing everything completely, but Drew Barrymore and Angelica Houston still send it out of the park, so it's perfectly great. <laughs> true, true. Um, so I really enjoy the theming of inner reflections of what a person is inside being brought out in a way. Um, like, I mean, the entire movie is just allegory after allegory, really. <laughs> yeah, I, I think people, when they think of movies in the 90s, they think of kind of the big blockbusters. They think of Independence mm. Day and things like that. But also in the 90s, you had movies that weren't afraid of doing pastiche and being a little different. I'm thinking of, like, mm. Heath Ledger in A Knight's Tale, specifically. Mm. Like, like yes. people were kind of okay with just enjoying going to the movies and seeing things um people were mm. still very articulate about when things didn't go well uh but <laughs> generally speaking movies in the 90s for me at least felt less self-aware they did feel a little more heartfelt you know the 90s gave us things that were boundary pushing cinematically yeah. um which also Pleasant Villas. Um, this is mm. the first movie where digitization was used to make black and white as opposed to like filming on black yes. and white and that adding color in. So like in the 90s, you got things like Pleasantville, but you also got things like Toy Story where films with great heart uh, were also being shown using cutting edge technology. Pleasantville and Jumanji mm. kind of have like a spiritual twin thing going on in that it's about the special effects, but it's also not. 
Um, this is one of the few 90s movies mm. that people keep trying to make into a stage musical as well, and they can't get the technical elements right because there's so many involved pieces yeah. of the movement from black and white to color over time. Um, it would be really difficult to do this on stage. I know people have tried, and if I can figure out how to do it, I would love to be the person to be able to do it because I love this movie dearly. Um, um, I do think you could do this as a queer narrative as well. I, I do think there is a part of this movie that, oh, yeah, um, that would lend itself well. well to a queer narrative. That, um, it seems like it, the, the only real missed opportunity here is there is not really, there is the idea that the three older main characters are in Thropple at the end of the movie, but that seems mm -hmm. like the wife is just moving between the two places. It doesn't seem like they're in one relationship. There are also no people of color in this film, which is a little weird in hindsight. Yeah. I will fully say that's weird. Um, but also just because in the 90s, a lot of films weren't thinking about that. Like when they filmed yeah. wild things, well, they weren't thinking about Denise Richards and Nev Campbell representing lesbians. So it's, well, it's, a, it's a whole thing. Um, yeah. What was the, um, oh, yeah, what was that, uh, the witches film with um, Sharon it? The, which, uh, is which, is a, which is a beast wick, yes. Which yeah. is a fabulous film, but it's definitely of its, its time. <laughs> oh, fan fantastic film. We enjoyed it. Um, but I remember sitting there with my partner the first time I saw it, and I turned to him on during the scene where the townspeople all nice and neatly outside on their chairs waiting for the children to do their like musical recital, and I said that there's not a single person of color in that sea of white. <laughs> Uh, it was yeah. yeah we just couldn't see it afterwards like, i think for a movie of witches witches of eastwick is based on a book and does very yeah. intentional work about the idea of free love versus republicanism uh, it's a series mm. of books and in the second one sons of eastwick it it kind of travels forward um and the town becomes like a full republican haven and so also not having any people of color in Witches of Eastwick is intentional. If here it just feels like they mm. decided not to cast any. Um, and as yeah. much as I love this movie, having no African American people is a little bit like I, I see it now, but I also don't know how they that would carry off because there's like no black people in like the Dick Van Dyke show. Um, I don't think there were any people of color even in. Um, like bewitched which would have been slightly more cutting edge mm. into the 60s uh so i'm not sure if it was no. intentional as a commentary or if it was just they weren't thinking about it but in the yeah. 90s again the conversation that would take place of representation and people of color wasn't really yeah. happening in 98 that really is a very turn of the century thing mm. um, yeah. there's an interesting parallel between the witches of eastwick town and the town from pleasantville in the sense of the portrayal of the sort of idealized um like middle class suburban community and elements that enter that community that are subversive but actually start to show sort of like the truth of the actual residents in the community yeah, uh, and that's something that I still feel like when you pick up this movie today, it still feels relevant because mm. even oh, yeah. now people are yearning for this 
weird, fictitious 1950s nuclear family plastic plastiche mm -hmm. safety thing. But this movie basically says, yes, we can give you that. But one, it won't last. Two, you're not going to be as happy as you thought you would be. Because even David as Bud, who absolutely adored Pleasantville as a show, even mm. he really can't live under the pressure. Although Reese Witherspoon is Jennifer, like, pushing Paul Walker into his, like, first sexual encounter without it being, like, assaulty is kind of an amazing piece of feminine, like, art. Uh, there, there's something about the way that Bud spends so long trying to keep everything Jennifer is creating and havoc from happening. And it kind of feels like Jennifer's having a tantrum. But also, Jennifer is more honest about what she wants throughout most of the yeah. film. Like, her transformation has this really great swell of music. It's very intimate. It's private, too. Whereas mm. most of the people that turn to color do so kind of in this public-private space, her transformation only happens for her in private. Uh, we don't know exactly when Joan Allen's transformation happens because we only see the after effects of it. But yeah. in watching the movie, when characters pop up in color, uh, that great scene where the bubblegum pops out of the girl's mouth and it's like hyper pink for the first time, uh, that mm. there's a very public aspect to how people are transforming because uh, mm. it can't be hidden. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's such an interesting thing to think about from a, like a feminist perspective too. I was going to say that um, if I recall correctly, um, the people that transform, it's the younger generation and the women in the film. And then towards the end, what's the ones that are left uncolored are more the older men of the town. Um, so there seems to be a, an interesting allegory there of a look at... Oh, <laughs> Trying not to be stereotypical here, but an allegory that um, older men set in their ways aren't so willing to get in touch with their inner selves. But those that are young or have more of a interest in their sexuality or their true selves will be. Does, does that make sense, what I'm saying? It does, and it's kind of accurate so that's also a great way to talk about the idea of who changes and why in mm. the beginning of the film when the change does happen it is mostly women it is mostly the teenage girls of the town especially um mm. but then people start to change when jennifer finds a copy of huckleberry finn and it starts filling in like so the mm. The girls begin to change, and then some of the guys begin to change, but then there's a section of young men that are, like, kind of angry and bitter about it, and they're following the model of Big Bob slash the mayor, mm. who wants to keep things the way they are. The The courtroom scene, very close to the end, where Bud does his big monologue, which is kind of this wonderful, stiff, almost two-on-the-nose piece, he changes William H. Macy, and he uses the idea of love and grief and loss to change William H. Macy. So it's not just about sex and it's not just about mm. bravery. It's about the intensity of that emotion. And he changes the mayor out of anger and all those people that had been like yelling in earlier scenes 
and the ones that mm. had like smashed the malt shop, uh, which by the way, Fiona Apple's Across the Universe cover takes place as people are smashing that malt shop. If you've never seen the music mm. video for it, um, I've never heard a Beatles cover quite like that. And it, it's this incredible thing of there's also the people that are in the youth that are unwilling to change, that are upholding the status quo. Yeah. Mm. Which is really because because you see like so Mark Lucas Mark Lucas's character and the guy that plays Jonathan on Buffy whose real name I can mm. never remember are two of the men that change early on in the film and like I said Mark Lucas's character changes and it feels like he becomes a more fully realized person it feels like he becomes more comfortable being submissive all the scenes of him he's behind his girlfriend. He's deferring to her. He has those lovely big doe eyes that they talked about in Anne mm. Hathaway's character in Ocean's Eight. Um, and there's this, and this thing about um, the Jonathan character wanting music, wanting to turn it on, not being sure how to rebel, but knowing that it's an okay thing and turn himself. So it's this really interesting mm -hmm. thing about the men in town don't change unless they're really willing to tap in. Uh, the reason Jeff Daniels changed is because he's an artist that was badly cast as like the malt shop guy, but he's so close to the teens that the heartbreaking hopelessness of him not knowing how to do things on his own and Bud having to teach him how to be able to open the malt shop on his own, the way that like he almost cries the first time he sees color. Um, when when he gets the book from the library, like you get a real sense that Jeff Daniels is really trapped. Mm. You get a sense that Joan yeah. Allen is really trapped. And William H. Macy doesn't even know he's trapped until almost the end of the film. But there's that great scene of him and Bud talking where Bud's almost getting him there, but he just can't get there. And like Paul Walker's skip doesn't get there until the end. Um, and it, it's this great thing of people not even knowing they're trapped too. Like they, yeah. like they let themselves be trapped by the binary, but they don't, they don't know until it's undeniable that everyone else around them is kind of free. So, <laughs> so could you argue that the film is a subtle message of people that are lost in a sort of unknowing ignorance uh, that they're sort of lost within conformity and then outside outside influence or inner influence comes along and brings forth a sort of enlightenment that shows that there is a world outside of like that yeah you know, the small town yeah. and that there are other things that they can learn about that are willing to change that can change their worldview I think that is kind of the dream of the movie, and sadly, herein is where it is the fantasy of the film is that people do change, can change, and they can be changed into better versions of themselves. Um, here in America, we know that that's not as true as we wanted it to be. In '98, yeah. we had no idea. We really thought the pendulum was swinging toward a better future, and it might still be. I'm hoping it is. But the, mm -hmm. the thing about Pleasantville is this idea. It really comes down to the idea of when they start talking about the things beyond Pleasantville. Mm -hmm. There's this idea of the road going on forever, where the road doesn't stop, where it doesn't fold back in on itself. And the teens respond 
to this idea of being able to find something new and being able to travel. They don't know why they're responding to it, because essentially they're two-dimensional stock characters in a fake TV show. They're essentially mm -hmm. Gilligan's Island, right? And the theme of Gilligan's Island is they're always going to end back up on the island, these six people, or seven people. Um, Pleasantville is about the ability to change and whether you embrace that or not. I don't think it's a mistake that in the end, after all the colors come to town, we don't see Big Bob in that final scene. There's no recounting of what happens to his character. We don't see Skip. Uh, we see um, Margaret and, and rushing into Bud's mm -hmm. arms, which is an amazing, like, callback to all the things they've been through. You know, we see Reese Witherspoon's character going off to school as the girl whose body she stole, essentially. Um, and we see Bud we see Bud returning to David with this kind of new truth he's living with in a world I... Definitely when I saw it the first time, I didn't think he was going to return to. <laughs> There's something really great about that choice, though. The idea that he knew enough not to hold on to it. Um, and, like, Jennifer knew enough to move forward in a new way. It's an interesting choice because in the narrative of the story, you would think at the end, Jennifer would go back into, quote unquote, the real world. And David would stay, but they both change so much that they actually subvert that expectation. Um, mm. And that heartbreaking scene uh, with Betty and Margaret just like standing there in the living room as like Bud vanishes into nothing. But then his like Letterman jacket from Pleasant Villas on the chair in the real world. Um, and Randy Newman's score has been just lifting this whole movie with bittersweet notes. Uh, by the way, best Randy Newman score, Pleasantville. Um, Randy Newman has done many great things. I know this, but I think Pleasantville is the best Randy Newman scored movie, to be perfectly honest with you. Hmm. Ooh. How intriguing. I shall have to um, listen properly to the score at some point. Mm. Yeah, uh, every, every single highlighted moment with music, uh, the rain... The opening theme to Pleasantville, the suite at the end, the mural song, uh, the song with uh, Betty and uh, Jeff Daniels' character in the diner alone. All that's Randy Newman, and it's fantastic. It's a great soundtrack for instrumental and even like a neo-1950s rock pop doo-wop sort of thing. So, yeah. Ooh, you mentioned Rain, and that actually leads me to a point I wanted to raise. Um, so within Pleasantville, they don't know about fire and rain. Um, but then yes, they've never heard of James Taylor. They they don't know anything about fire and rain. It's true. <laughs> um, they never experienced it. But then the the introduction of these of these two opposing elements into the film is very specifically done. What yeah. what do you think is the meaning behind that? Why was Fire and Rains considered such a thing to be kept out of Pleasantville? Uh, well, I can imagine if it happened in the fake show that it really had to do with um, the idea of it being plot-driven so it had no consequence because everything was going to go back. Like, the thing mm -hmm. about Leave it to Beaver was Beaver was going to get in trouble, somebody else was going to clean it up, and then next week it's the same thing all over mm. again so there are no consequences everything's short term family guy does it for some weird reason they've really latched on to like that weird 1950s sitcom thing even though they use an all in the family reference 
for their opening uh, for their opening song. So the first part is is the fire comes because Betty orgasms in the bath, which I think is the most incredible. Like I want people to just sit with that for a moment. This repressed 1950s housewife gets in a bath and her daughter has told her about self-pleasure. She orgasms, the bath turns into color, and a tree in a yard somewhere nearby explodes into flame. I just want everyone for a second in their moment, in their <laughs> lives, to sit with mm. that. Because after that orgasm, after the fire, after the explosion, uh, Bud sees it, and he go gets firemen, and he shows them how to use their hoses. Like, you couldn't be more more feminine liberation if you try it, it's this amazing it, it's one of those things where like i don't have enough film study knowledge to understand all the facets of it but i think it is incredible because we don't see any other real fire in the film even when they're destroying the malt shop um mm -hmm. even when they're going to have like the the town hall meeting at night you don't see fire anywhere else in the film. This is the only moment in time you see fire anywhere in this film, either in the real world or in Pleasantville. And it's this combustion of Betty Parker's entire life and her wanting something more and asking for it and receiving it. And also, FYI, amazing bathroom styling. The set design, especially for the interior of these homes, just incredible, like, I could live in a bathroom like that. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> and rain as an element is uncontrollable. Uh, rain as an element mm -hmm. could be very pleasant, but it can also cause a flood. Um, I, I love the conversation in the barbershop. Rain? Real rain? We've never had real rain. So, like, there's almost an awareness that rain is something they've talked about, but they've never actually, mm -hmm. quote-unquote, had. You can imagine they did, like, a Christmas special, so they had, like, fake snow once. But, like, yes. real rain, you can't control it. It does things mm -hmm. to the environment. People's lives can be dictated by the amount of it. Mm -hmm. um, especially in a town yeah. where everyone walks everywhere, you get rain you know, maybe maybe the women have to wear jeans instead of their petticoats in the rain. You know, then you get <sighs> women wearing pants and it's the 1960s oh. and you're you're doing late I love Lucy. Uh there's something there's something great about rain as also like the baptism baptismal religious thing. Cause when the mm -hmm. kids get rained on and they learn not to fear it, there's kind of this very Godspell Jesus Christ superstar like joy about them. You get the Randy Newman yeah. score and they're at that pretty lake up at Makeout Point or whatever it was called. Uh, that's one of my favorite. That's one of my favorite things is watching the car transform into yellow as it goes past the cherry blossoms and they all go from gray to yellow. Um, and there's something really great about. That's the start of the journey of Bud realizing it's not an individual thing; it is a corporate thing too. And then there's a stark contrast of Bud still in black and white, not knowing why he can't change. Because it hasn't hit him yet, because he because he's been doing all the work for other people, and he hasn't had a chance to really think about it for himself yet. Mm -hmm. um, Toby McGuire yeah. really sends you through it in this movie. Like he's really he's he's in it to win it, and it's so yeah. it was just showing the caliber of talent he possessed. This movie with an with a younger actor, a less mature actor, an actor that couldn't hold a a screen lead. Like, yeah. I don't think Leonardo DiCaprio 
in 98 could have done this. Like, he could do Titanic, but I don't think he could have played David as Bud. Hmm. Oh. Well, it's one of those what-if scenarios that would have been yeah. interesting to see that take on it. Hmm. Yeah, because he, so, he was doing Titanic at this point, so, like, they knew each other, but hmm. I don't think they were friends in, in 97, 98. I could be wrong. I don't really remember. Uh, but, like, we hadn't had a good Lost Boys, a good Outsiders movie in a while, so Pleasantville doesn't quite fill that role, um, but there's something very much communal about Pleasantville that almost gives you that Outsiders, um, Lost Boys feel in a way. So I want to add my quick thoughts to the purpose of fire and rain within Pleasantville. I view it as a metaphor for how the how Pleasantville as a town is all about conformity. Every element is perfect. It reflects an ideal. Fire and rain as aspects of nature have always been portrayed as uncontrollable. They're not something that we think that we've mastered like fire, but really fire can't be mastered. And rain comes whenever it wants to come. So these elements being introduced to Pleasantville in their particular ways, <laughs> as we've discussed, um, they represent like nature starting to have an influence on the town as much as the people in it are finding themselves as well. So in a way, the world itself has become uh, the same way that the, the roads no longer loop back in on themselves, but the world itself is opening up um, and it's becoming almost like its own character in a way, rather than sort of the staple that has been always in the show for going from 2D to 3D. As uh, well. there, there's also an interesting religious element here because in the rain also comes the apple, which is like the traditional Americana yes. um, uh, desert original sin moment. Uh, and here, instead of going to the desert, they go into the rain, uh, which I kind of like, Nagori, but it is a little heavy handed because Don Knotts, as the omnipotent god that has brought um, David and Jennifer into this universe, he does get a little bit conniptive. Uh, he has kind of a bit of a fit over the apple thing, which I think was maybe a bit on the nose. But as far as Gary Ross's work goes, it's 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 a uh, it's a really good one. Um, mm. The whole scene in the rain is really great because it's a combination of everything that's happened in the movie. It sends William H Macy into the tailspin of not understanding what's going on, which is going to lead to his kind of revival into color later. It traps Betty with Jeff Daniels diner character um to the point where they start falling in love and it has this effect of where everybody now in bud's group is in color except for bud so now bud has realized that it's not just about the wanting it's about so much more it's about action with the wanting the whole yeah. scene with the rain really does it, it's the west side story tonight quintet moment it's the South Park Viva La Resistance moment. It's the middle of the film. It's where everything kind of changes on a dime. It leads directly into the destruction of the malt shop. It leads to the mural that leads to the courtroom scene. 
It had all happened because of this uncontrollable element from above that the mayor can't control, that people can't control. It leads to like the great scene in the bowling alley, which is the opening of the trailer, is the scene in the bowling alley minus uh, William H. Macy. Uh, there's there's something really stunning about that, about how the older men cloister together at the barbershop and then at the bowling alley. You never see them except for William H. Macy and the guy like watering his lawn perpetually. You don't really see them on their own except for Jeff Daniels' character. He's the only one that doesn't like consort with the other men of the town. And he has that wonderful artist eye. Um, and he makes a reference to like getting to do paintings on the windows at Christmas and that being his favorite time of year. Uh, and there's something, there's something really wonderful about that, but also very significant about him being an outsider, even among the class of people he's supposed to be in mm. cahoots with. Like, he's never in the bowling alley. He's never with the mayor. He doesn't know how to talk to the mayor. Uh, Bud is the one that has to stand up and give the big speech because Jeff Daniels doesn't know how to assert himself. He he barely has color. He can't be assertive. Like he's just he just got color like yesterday. You can't expect miracles, you know. <laughs> mm. It's interesting how many um movies gravitate towards a courtroom as the sort of arena to close off disputes and such. Almost as if like the situations that have been happening throughout the movie ultimately go to somewhere that is a place of authority to almost like bring a resolution yeah to well and, and courtrooms are easy because it's giving mm. you uh it's giving you so you've got when, when you write a film or a tv script you've got like physical movement which is like this major thing changing mm. scenes and things like dialogue is often considered minor but it can have mm. the most effect on the scene um, there's also a religious element because there's something very biblical about judgment to begin with. Yes. And so you've gone from the original sin, um, you've gone from the traveling into kind of this desert of knowledge, which Pleasantville is until Bud unlocks Huckleberry Finn, essentially. Um, it, it's, well, it's, there's something very... So religious movies don't always have to be about religion. And I think Pleasantville is a case in point as a coming out film as a film about desire, as a film about religion. Mm. It has all those elements. There are no churches in Pleasantville. I don't know if you caught that while watching the film. Mm. There's no priest character. There's no church in this 1950s America town. If it's there, we only see it in overhead over the town. But there's mm. no priest character. They go to a doctor. They have a teacher. They have the mayor and the mayor's cronies. They have the barber shop. Mm. You know, they have the you know, basketball court, but they don't have a priest-preacher character. The person bringing them knowledge and bringing them light are these outsiders. Um, it's mm. Essentially, Bud right. has, like, a Prometheus. David as Bud has this very much Prometheus bringing fire and then, like, getting in trouble for bringing fire thing. It's almost more Greek than it is Ooh. Christian. Uh, but it does have Christian elements, because that's unavoidable when doing 1950s Americana stuff, really. And then the mayor, uh, you could look at it playing a surrogate role um, as Zeus, the head of the head of the authority, the one that's in charge of the town or hmm, the mountain, and he is outraged at this 
sort of sharing of knowledge and wishes to punish. Although in this telling of the story, um, Zeus is overthrown and the fire is spread far and wide and the entire town enjoys in the same sharing of knowledge in the end. Yeah, there's something really interesting too about the mayor. Like he's a very angry character, but he's not really the, like he is the villain of this movie and about the last third of it. But Hmm. the villain of this movie is more ignorance than anything else. The villain of this movie is Bud's inability to see what Jennifer is offering the world. Um, There are people that are doing bad things by destroying the malt shop, but they're not doing it to harm people as much as they're doing it out of a frustration they don't know what to do with, trying to send a Mm. message, trying to go back. There's no real, like, you feel traditional villain moments in Skip when he hasn't yep. changed into color yet, when they're calling the town meeting and they do set up that divide. Gary Ross does a very deft job of setting up that divide without making it feel preachy between the two sides of the town. But the side of the town that's still in black and white is still fighting amongst itself. No one is mm-hmm. like, the, there's no Hitler character here. The, the mayor's as close as we get, but he's still more Zeus than that. Cause he doesn't have yeah. control of it either. No one has control yeah. over people changing into color no. because no mm. one really gets why it happens. Cause everyone has a, an, an individual experience with it. Uh, William H. Macy's mm. grief over the loss of his wife, his missing her, his learning that mm. verbiage and allowing himself to feel that fear that is so much different from Jeff Daniels seeing color and almost crying at looking at these masterworks. And so mm. it's so individualized. There's no there's no way to be like, this is the thing that is the problem that we need to stop. Like it didn't happen yes. that way, you know. It it all comes back to the fact of the film being very relatable. Oh, like it was relatable back then and it's relatable still now. Um, because what we're seeing with the mayor's reaction and the town people that are still um black and white, it's fear. It's fear of something unknown that's happening in the place that you live to the people that you know. And you, because there's no discernible, like, you know, you know, simple problem to their mind. I mean, it's not a problem, but there's no discernible, simple reason for it. They're acting out um, and trying to, like, take control. The mayor is angry as well because as an authority figure, he's losing control of the situation. And, you know, when you've been in charge, it's not, it's, but it's nice to like, still feel that you're in charge. And he's probably always been mayor. So it's also lashing out in fear, not just of losing his authority, but who else would he be if he wasn't big Bob anymore? You know, he, he's watching Mm. the, the people of this, the, the young men of this town, turning into color, becoming, you know, whoever they're going to be, not winning basketball, which is kind of the thing the town is known for in the fictitious other towns that it plays. Mm. There's something interesting about the idea of loss of control, causing fear, causing that feedback loop of not being able, Mm. because even with William H. Macy, who spends the character, who spends the movie as, mostly a cartoon mostly unrealized mostly unwilling to do the work of looking inside himself and just wanting betty to change back into the thing he knew that was familiar 
even he's willing to do the work because there's something inside of him that misses her. And it's very nice. And it's one of those things that we never get a sense of the mayor ever wanting to do that work. We don't get the mayor coming mm. to talk to Bud while Bud is in jail. And we'd never yeah. see Jeff Daniels in jail. So we never see uh, Jeff Daniels and William H. Macy having that same conversation because mm. they're not contemporaries, essentially. Uh, and yeah. it's that jail scene conversation well, William H. Macy must have eaten an entire jar of olives because one of the things he does in the scene is he opens the, the jar of olives, he starts eating them. I'm just picturing how many olives poor William H. Macy had to eat <laughs> during that scene um, in order to get it done. But it's this really mm. intimate, stark moment. Uh, they talk in the Wikipedia page mm. about The Wizard of Oz and about Schindler's List and all the films that use color and lack of color to tell a story. Um, mm. I think there's something about space in this movie because there's something about how big the town is and how it seems to grow with color. Cause I don't know if that makeout point was there before, but it certainly got bigger as the kids got more color in them. But there's something about this mm. small jail cell without any of the trappings of the 1950s life, stark walls, big kind of film noir style corners with shadows and just this kind of bare overhead light done really well. And you get William H. Macy and you get Tobey Maguire in this very stark space, just having a conversation about humanity and what it means to miss someone. And it's this amazing moment of two people meeting where they are, not knowing where they're meeting. When I talk about writing dialogue where there's emptiness in it, because not all the answers are there for people. This scene is that dialogue of there's so much not being said that's affected by the mm. rest of the movie. And it's an incredible scene that I have a hard time picturing any of the other heartthrobs of the time. Like I have a hard time picturing younger Matt Dillon doing it. I have a harder time mm. picturing young Leo doing it. I have, I have a hard time picturing like Mark Paul Gosler or Ryan Philippi or even Brecken Meyer from 54 doing it. Like this was a moment that only Toby could do in my mind. I can't see any, I can't see like not quite mm. young, but not great, greatest showman age, Zach Efron doing it. Like, it seems like something that only Toby <laughs> can do with sincerity, but also have it still be a film. Um, mm. It's a great scene. If you're, if you're a writer that really wants to learn about writing Pleasant Phil is a great movie to look at the idea of both pastiche and about allegory, but these mm. small intimate scenes, the scene with Tobey Maguire putting his mother's makeup on so that she can hide mm. and be safe because she doesn't have the language for what's happened to her yet is incredible. I cannot stress that enough. It is a long scene. It is almost too intensely intimately long. And mm. it's one of the scenes when I think about what film is and why it's different than TV and why it's different than theater and why it's different than even like a musical album. I think of that. And I think about the sorrow and the change in power and the desire and the lack of desire and the fear. And I just think no matter what else Joan Allen did in her career in Hollywood, that was the moment that she was always meant to do because I can't think of anything else mm. as powerful as that 
please hide me, I'm so scared, and doing it because you don't know what else to do. Um, yeah. And it's also that's also queer theory right there. It's also queer theory and queer <laughs> theology in film, essentially, mm. you know. Yep. I wonder, something that we haven't touched upon yet, I wonder if this is another metaphor the movie could be for oh this movie you can view it in so many bloody different ways i, I know it's, I it's infuriating it. isn't it you just start and then it just keeps going it's infuriating <laughs> i wonder whether it's also a story about the intro like the introduction of people being true of themselves and their emotions um You've had this perfect little town where everyone puts on a face, everyone has their role, um, you know, everything's fine, it's pleasant in Pleasantville, but then people start to explore their emotions, be it um, the truth of their unhappiness or finding something they find new joy in, um, finding a moment of courage to stand up for yourself, or expressing true anger and fear and admitting that to yourself i wonder whether that as well like all of this these emotions coming through the cracks um there's one of the posters for the movie um you remember we were talking about the burning tree from yes. before uh, there's a great poster from the movie where um oh it betty and uh, who else is it uh i think is it betty the mom the mother uh yeah the mom is betty yeah isn't it betty and um her lover they're kissing and the burning tree is in the background and uh, pleasantville was yes. along the bottom in big yes. letters uh they did a couple different really fabulous posters for this movie the uh, one with mm -hmm. um bud and, and margaret when he gives her the uh umbrella for the first time is the one that we got most in america it's the iconic mm. thing that i remember about it but there's also like a rainbow poster there's a burning tree poster they really, they really did quite a few different versions of it for it, and there's so much good cin cinematography in the movie that you could make a mm. whole bunch of different posters for it work really well, I think. Mm. And the one that I recall at the moment is um, the brother and sister, they're in full color, and it's almost like the black and white townspeople are looking up at a movie poster of the kids in color as if that's got their attention and yeah. the townsfolk are the audience um oh, oh gary, so... Love. gary ross really oh, so gosh. gary ross was born in 56 and mm. so as a kid he would have been raised on like leave it to beaver and things like that because there was mm. a time where tv wasn't really pushing the boundaries they were just making things like the many loves of Dobie gillis and the first dennis the mm. menace so, like, black and white TV <laughs> would have been something Gary Ross knew and lived. Uh, another theme I really like in this movie is the idea of how community is changed by how lonely you are. Uh, there's mm. So I have, so the part of the movie that I kind of struggle with in loving this film is the opening of the movie before they're in Pleasantville. Um, for me, that has kind of the same effect as the Gene Wilder, uh, Willy Wonka. Uh, where that kind of first twenty minutes before they get to the to the uh, before they get to the factory, I could I could kind of do without, not just because I don't like the songs, but I find the fact the teacher can't divide by two is like 
makes me angry. Uh, so mm-hmm. there's also at the opening of the movie in the real world, you don't know that Jennifer is lonely because she doesn't, but you can tell that David is lonely. He's an outcast. He has two other friends, and all they talk about is Pleasantville and the upcoming Pleasantville Marathon. He doesn't really have an interior mm. life outside of this show and outside of the perfection of the show. And he can answer all these great, wonderful trivia questions, but his friends aren't there for the marathon he's having. He is alone mm. on a couch eating Cheetos, his mom going off for his date, his sister going off for his date. Mm. I think one of the things that people don't think about is the idea that Bud is trying to hold together this black and white world, not because he doesn't want it to change, but because things changing around him means he has to confront that loneliness. The idea of Margaret baking him cookies instead of Whitey, which is kind of his subplot, his first big change in the universe. Mm. The idea of teaching Jeff Daniels' character that he doesn't need Bud that he is an independent person. I, there's something about how the characters experience loneliness so differently. Um, and I really love that in that we both see that in Joan Allen as Betty, but we also don't. Like, because 1950s TV housewives didn't have full interior lives. I could not tell you anything about the mom from Leave it to Beaver. I could barely tell you about Mary Tyler Moore in the Dick Van Dyke show. Like, Mm. it's one of those things where, like, everything that Bud does in the first third of the movie, up until the point where there's a burning tree on fire and he realizes how much joy he brings the firemen by showing them how to do their jobs, everything up to that point has been a response to fear and loneliness, but not because change is bad. It's more because without Pleasantville the way it is, and his enjoyment of that life, his enjoyment of being mm. like essentially a jock and getting to live yes. out that fantasy of having all that control. Without that, he doesn't really know who he is because he was very lost in the real world. Um, mm. And he doesn't have he doesn't have the language to get out of his own cage for a long time. It's yeah. not until he's literally fighting for someone else that he can even get out of his own cage enough to to turn Mm -hmm. into color. And there's a great moment with Betty's compact that's gone from being gray to being this fabulous 1950s gold and showing him his own face for the first time. Uh, There's so much where there was so much sorrow before. Now there's so much joy of recognizing another person. And that's another part of the queer narrative that you can't, you can't deny the queerness Mm -hmm. of this movie in many different ways and i think maybe it's different for straight audiences because they don't do that same work grappling with sexuality necessarily uh but for but for queer people anytime you see a movie where somebody recognizes themselves in a mirror you're like oh this is a queer moment you know kind of thing yeah i mean i would argue that straight audiences um to use that term um it's a lot different it's a lot different for them nowadays than it was um, 20, 30 years ago, or even going further back into the era that Pleasantville was taking place in. Um, there's a lot of discussions nowadays around masculinity, what masculinity is, um, and sort of what men are should allow themselves to enjoy. Um, there's a 
there's a lot of um thinking about in real life um a lot of my female friends i get along well with their partners and you'll be surprised at the varied interests that they 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 are so comfortable enjoying so comfortable admitting they enjoy i look at them and then i look at pleasantville and it's like it's a whole other type of world of masculinity um and i think um a lot of heterosexual women and heterosexual men and will find some perfectly valid and interesting um thoughts to have through watching that movie oh of course yeah i i just it just is one of those things where as a Mm queer writer and as a queer person mm. yes i tend to oh, see yeah. it in films it's just one of those things where like when i watch oh. pleasant bill i can't ignore the queer narrative but for a straight audience member it's much easier to just say well it's about repression and liberation or it's just a political allegory or it's just religious uh but there's something and this is where we come to the title of our podcast everything is gay even the straight stuff where mm-hmm. there may not be any queer people on screen but you could easily make oh. this into a queer film without really changing much of anything. Oh um, yeah. Even, even if you Definitely. didn't have, uh, even if you didn't have Margaret be like Mark or something, if, if you need to change it for Tobe McGuire, Jeff Daniels character has uh, an incredible nuance to him that could be read as queer. Um, I would love to see a Tobe McGuire bud character that is queer. Um, in an, like an updated version of this i don't know if you could do an updated version of this because i don't know how yeah. you do people of color in this 1950s world because it mm. really didn't happen um in that like that is one thing about american tv that we just did not have like there were no people of color on tv for quite a while um and if they were mm. they were being it was like minstrel shows and it was very very racist um so it, yeah. would be, it would be really hard to update this and still keep it. This might be a case of where, in its imperfections, you just have to kind of love it for what yeah. it is and take what you can. Um, but there's a lot of good things here that you could see. Um, mm. And I think that as far as movies in the 90s went that were kind of these love stories self-discovery movies like because you have movies like 28 days where sandra bullock is like in a um in an outpatient alcohol treatment facility and finds herself which is great Mm. um and you have movies like dave where dave the good twin comes in and saves the country Mm. um this is a movie from the 90s that really was about coming of age and love without it being like a really dark story because you had <laughs> movies in the 90s that were really going full-fledged darkness, and you had movies in the 90s that were really wacky. And I think this movie really does draw a really mm. nice line where you can have comedy and you can have silly and a little little strange and surreal, mm. but you don't have to lose the heart of the movie to get there. Um, and I think it's something, I don't know if you could remake it, but it is something that was very 90s but it was very needed um Mm. even other movies about that time period uh like whoopi goldberg and i think it was karina um don't really do what pleasant bill did movies about the 50s that were made in the 90s 
I can't think of one that was anything like what Pleasantville was. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I really mm. actually can't, which is surprising because normally I can think of something <laughs> to disprove myself. So, Well, there you go, sorry. It's showing that, uh, as I was going on a little while back, the, this is one of those films that ju they just pop up every, up every now and again. It's the perfect combination of elements at the right time. And it's unique for that. Yeah. Um, I agree. I don't know if they could redo it now because in the terms of, I'm thinking now in the terms of storytelling, if they redid it, I have this horrible feeling it might be the meanings in the film might be a bit too on the nose. Yeah. Um, well, because... like when they try, when they remade Stepford Wise, they remade Bewitched, mm -hmm. you know, and it was yeah. this thing where I don't know how much audiences enjoy sincerity anymore. It's like they need it to be something mm -hmm. that makes fun of itself or they need it to have such an over the top message that it can't just be what it is. Um, yeah. And that's hard. That that is hard. That is a hard world to make a film in, <laughs> really, honestly. Yes. Uh, for some bizarre reason, I'm thinking of the recently one a sincere film that I saw, but but is perhaps the most <laughs> furthest away from Pleasantville you can get. Um, I went and watched a B movie recently, Cocaine Bear. Oh yeah, everybody loves Cocaine Bear. It was a I real thing that do. happened, by the way. That was based on a real story. Yeah. Which uh, is although I think great. there was I think there was artistic liberties taken. I mean, the, the film was called film. Cocaine Bear. So yes. Also, you can visit yes. the real Cocaine Bear in America. They had him taxidermied. I know. That's cocaine so, Bear is a real so thing so... you can see in the world. I, yeah, it boggles the mind. But the reason I bring this up is, yeah, it's a wacky film, and it's not for everyone. Like with like the mixture of like comedy and like uh, B movie horror and such. But there's a real sincerity within the filmmaking. It's clear that this was a passion project, and everyone in the film is in on it, and because of that. It's perfect in what it is, and yeah. it doesn't cut it well. It can threaten to be feel like it goes over the top, but I don't think it does. Um, but it couldn't have been done any differently, otherwise, it would have been a totally different thing. And that's the same with Pleasantville, as you've said, that you can't imagine different actors playing different roles, or the you know, the movie having been told in a different era like 10 20 years later yeah. it came about with the right cast at the right time uh i think that if you wanted to pair pleasantville with something that's mm. happening today or in the past couple of years i would consider mm -hmm. midnight mass um which was the hamish link letter netflix miniseries about the small town uh, where mm. the priest is not who he appears to be and is actually, I, I don't know if I'm just, I'll spoil it. The priest is actually like a vampire, but like kind of couches it like he's an angel. And Midnight Mass is about this small town and the spell of idealism and the spell of healing yourself. And the, it's a very religious um, show. Um, and it kind of takes itself a little bit seriously, but Hamish Linkletter had just come off a of Legion when he'd done it. So it kind of, he still had that like legion energy i really love from his character um so i would say midnight mass is 
pretty close to what um to what Pleasantville makes some people feel. I would I would go with Midnight Mass if you want to do like a 1998 versus quote-unquote modern kind of feel mm. interesting yes god i now that you say that name i completely remember hearing about it at the time but it's one of those things that just slip back into background again but it's, perhaps this it's is wild time. i would recommend Ooh. i would recommend a viewing of it it's wild um i do yeah. love a good wild thing it's true um, okay, so I would like to end this episode. I have a, I have kind of a question slash potential teaser for the next episode. So I talked about what Gary Ross had made. I talked about Big and Dave, uh, Pleasantville being his first directorial debut, but he helped write both Big and Dave. Um, he did Seabiscuit right after also with Tobey Maguire, which was a big thing in 2013. We were all kind of enamored with the idea of jockeys at the turn of the century which is weird um but there was a movie in 2012 that uh gary ross directed and he only directed the first one and a movie in 2018 i dearly love um that i'm very excited to so what movie in 2012 do you think gary ross directed if you can if you can remember 2012 you weren't just so busy being fabulous you lost the whole year I'm trying to remember what came out in 2012. <laughs> I'm I just, sorry. I'm like, just like putting you on the spot. That's what it is. Oh, I have absolutely no idea. You'll probably say it and I'll kick myself, but no, I, I admit my defeat. So Gary Ross directed the first Hunger Games movie. He, oh, didn't, Christ do, he didn't do any of the sequels, <laughs> but he directed the first Hunger Games movie. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah. And then in 2018, he directed one of my other favorite uh, kind of a new classic because I don't have a lot of new, new movies I like. But in 2018, he directed Ocean's 8, which is the Sandra Bullock oh, Kate Blanchett heist film, yes. which is mm. one of my favorite movies. And I haven't really decided yet if I want to talk about Ocean's 8 because I have a bevy of films that I really want to talk about. Uh, but knowing that the guy that directed Pleasantville also directed Hunger Games and Ocean's 8, now that you know that, you can go back and look at those movies and see if anything from Pleasantville comes in uh comes in in meaning and ideology i think in the hunger games <laughs> i think you might find it in the hunger games because sam's mm. all like explosion and child murder hunger games really is a story about how people find themselves in an oppressive state so yeah mm. i just thought that i would throw those out there that i learned about <laughs> gary ross <laughs> Oh, that, that's a great piece of trivia and i would like to actually bring a piece of trivia to end as my final point for this sure. uh, yes. episode um just something i had a, a small giggle to myself earlier um the fact that toby mcguire plays a parker in this movie his surname being parker in pleasantville and of course every the, the role that everyone knows him for that he would end up playing i think about five years later as another Parker in a particular Marvel movie. And uh, I love the irony. I actually, because I don't think Marvel was doing, I do think that first Spider-Man film was one of the Sony Spider-Man films. Oh, no, no, sorry. I meant, I know it's a Sony film. I meant, you know, it's Marvel Comics yeah. property. 
Yes. Sorry, yes. that's uh, what I meant. <laughs> Marvel, what Mar- Marvel was like giving characters away at that point because oh, they yeah. just could not make films or TV shows their life. And um, in hindsight, they probably regretted it like crazy. What's really going to burn everybody's biscuits is Tobey Maguire slept with Robert Downey Jr. in Wonder Boys. Uh, and so there's actually a version of Peter Parker and uh, Tony Stark yeah. that were that were in a relationship in a different movie. Uh, every now and then on Tumblr, when I was still doing Tumblr, I would see people bringing up Wonder Boys gifts. Uh, and and the movie is so different from the book in a lot of ways mm. uh, that I that I almost feel like it's a different property. It's Wonder Boys and Dead Poet Society are kind of up there together in those coming of age tales with uh, school ties, where it's very much about like the all boys school and the experience of growing up and into manhood, uh, which is something I feel Pleasantville handle, handles much better, um, mostly because. I feel like an all boys school is kind of a distraction to the story, if I'm completely honest. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes. So uh, next time we will continue uh, April as my birthday month, a tribute to me and all the things I love. Um, yes. Cause I'm, I'm being very subtle about this. Let me tell you. Yeah. Um, and then in May, I know we're going to do half Halloween and I'm very excited about that. I just found out. Yes, go on. I just found out the Boulay brothers are going to be doing a halfway to Halloween special on 425 um, on Shudder, which I'm very excited Ooh. to watch. I don't know if it's going to be a show, uh, but whatever the Boulay brothers are doing, I am down to see. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yes. <sighs> well, wow. Thank you. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in. I hope that you enjoyed this discussion. If you haven't seen Pleasantville or listened to the soundtrack, what are you doing? Do that now. You have the time. You've just finished a podcast. Congratulations. <laughs> Preach yourself. And we'll see you next time on Everything is Gay, Even the Straight Stuff. Have a great day, Magnus. You too, darling. We'll speak soon. Ta-da. Ta-da.